Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with me another Thursday evening where we have the opportunity to continue to reflect upon Christopher West's work, The Love That Satisfies. As you know, we have been devoting each and every Thursday to the topic of theology of the body. And what Christopher West does for us is essentially break open Benedict XVI's work, Deus Caritas S, God is Love, Benedict's first encyclical. It's broken up into two major parts. The first part is devoted to understanding eros, this love shared between the two sexes, and agape, God's love, sacrificial love, and how we are to see these two in light of each other, that essentially um, agape, God's love, uh, is constantly purifying and infusing Eros with that power of life, uh, just not biologically, but also spiritually, huh? And so this is what Christopher West does. He reflects upon Pope Benedict XVI, the first half of his encyclical. So with that, what I thought we could do is uh, just really jump back into where we left off last week. Chris Seibert will be joining me next week. Uh, I, I planned on having him with me this week. He was unable to be with me, so I am flying solo. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments, observations, please do not hesitate to email me, or you can contact me uh, by way of my website at joholcraft.org. My email is j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com. So uh, with that, the love that satisfies. You know, we are in this chapter, a chapter entitled Encountering God Who Is Love. Um, Let us remember the language of the new evangelization, synonymous with this culture of encounter, uh, as Pope Francis would put it. This, this need to bring Christ into the culture, that the people within our local communities might encounter Christ. So we need to create this culture of encounter. And if we're going to do this, then you and I, my dear friends, need to first encounter God, huh? God who is love. And so what we've been doing then is working through this chapter uh, with Christopher West, with Benedict XVI, on better understanding how we are called to encounter uh, this God who is love. So we pick up on uh, number six here uh, with Benedict's paragraph number 12. He says this, by contemplating the pierced side of Christ, we can understand the starting point of this encyclical letter. God is love. It is there that this truth can be contemplated. It is from there that our definition of love must begin. In this contemplation, the Christian discovers the path along which his life and love must move. Mm, beautiful. So you can begin to imagine that we are now, yeah, getting into that Agape, that more specific definition of what does God's love look like, right? Benedict wants us to reflect upon the pierced side of Christ. 
And maybe what struck me more than anything else in my first reading of that paragraph was the word contemplation. What does the word contemplation itself mean? He's asking us to contemplate the pierced side of Christ. What does that mean? Well, contemplation literally means to fix your gaze on Jesus. Huh? It is a silent love. The Catechism highlights St. John Vianney when talking about contemplation. I look at him and he looks back at me. I love that. Now, contemplation is a more classic expression of prayer, if you will. There's three expressions of prayer, vocal prayer, meditation, and contemplation. You know, the need to involve the senses in interior prayer you know, it really corresponds to our human nature. This is what vocal prayer is about. We are body and spirit. And so we experience the need to translate our feelings externally in words. Huh? I, I've already mentioned, you know, Christ gives us the full vision of man. Uh, he renders to us our true anthropology, body and soul. Christ was asked, how do we pray? He responded, pray our father. And in so doing, he says, he uses words, okay? So that's vocal prayer. And then we have meditation. Meditation is that prayerful quest where we are called to engage thought, imagination, emotions, and desires, reflecting maybe on a reed, a picture, an icon, where we are called to move from, from thoughts to reality. Meditation is the place where we uh, better discern what God is calling us to do in our life. So meditation is a quest, mind and heart, not necessarily spoken per se, but a quest nonetheless to better understand how God is working in our life. And certainly, certainly you, you can do this with a gospel passage. This is what the Ignatius exercises are all about, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Huh? You, you get into a gospel text, you go into that time frame of, you know, 31, 32 AD, and maybe you get into the boat with Jesus. You feel the wind. You hear his voice. You see the waves, okay? This is the kind of thing that St. Ignatius would want us to do. And in doing so, we can better understand uh, maybe how God wants to work in our life. We have to be asking that question. God, how are you speaking to me in this moment? It is a powerful way to read the gospel text. So that's meditation. And then we have contemplation. Again, that fixed gaze on Jesus Christ. I love that line from John Vianney, St. John Vianney. I look at him and he looks back at me. So with that, returning to Benedict's paragraph here, by contemplating the pure sight of Christ, in this contemplation, the Christian discovers the path along which his life and love must move. You know, he uses the word contemplation three times in this paragraph. He wants us to fix our gaze upon the pierced side of Christ, that we might see the love of his heart open up for us. Christ's heart pierced for his bride, the church, and is always here from which we must begin. So, let us go to the Gospel of John and read that all-important passage in light of Benedict's words. Huh? You go to John 19, verses 32 to 35. We read this. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. 
He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you may also believe. Believe in what? Believe in love, huh? Believe in love. By contemplating, my dear friends, the pierced side of Christ, we can better understand that God is love. And that is what Benedict wants us to see. In this mysterious burst of blood and water, what do we witness but the explosion of divine love in Christ's human heart? It is so fascinating to me to think of the soldier's sword who wished to ensure Christ's death was the sword that unleashed life. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, this is one of the great paradoxes of our faith. Once you think that you've conquered Christianity by killing it, what are you doing? It only bursts forth with more life. One saint after another, one martyr after another, they lay their life down for Christ and they are dying at the sword of some emperor, some king. And that emperor, king, what are they wanting to do? They are wanting to destroy Christianity. They are wanting to kill Christianity. And what they don't realize is that what they are doing is unleashing more power. The liturgical calendar is chock full of martyrs. So it is. The liturgical calendar is chock full of life being unleashed each and every day, every time we go to Mass and we hear another account of some man or some woman giving their life over to Jesus Christ. Fascinating. So yeah, we must contemplate the pierced side. And in so doing, we might discover something unexpected. That suffering is the answer to all of our suffering. That by contemplating the pierced side of Christ and contemplating Christ's woundedness, his ache, our own woundedness, our own ache might actually begin to make sense. It is impossible to comprehend the suffering of one human life, let alone, and Christopher West talks about this, the multiple billions of men, women, and children who have lived and died in the history of the earth. Christopher West just lists a series of events that really put things in perspective. He says, yeah, yeah, look at it, consider it. Wars, concentration camps, rapes, murders, starvation, betrayals, torture, kidnappings, terrorism, natural disasters, unrequited love, disease, mental and physical disabilities, the unexpected or even expected death of loved ones, people ripped from family and homeland and sold into slavery. If God is love, as Christian faith insists, how can he allow such suffering? That's the great question. Why is he blind to our misery? That's the question that Christopher West poses. And I think it's a great question because it leads to the answer. The answer then is this. Is he? By contemplating the blood and water, certainly symbols of Eucharist and baptism, gushing from the heart of our crucified Lord, what we discover is that God is rich in mercy. It's interesting. The word itself Mercy in the Latin, misericordiae, literally means a heart which gives itself to those in misery. Miseries, cordere, right? 
a heart which gives itself to those in misery. You know, God never promises to take away our sufferings in this life, but what he does promise is to be with us in our misery. He promises us that we can find him there and that in the end, he will bring great good out of our own suffering. If you were to go back into the Old Testament, you see a wonderful vision of God's mercy. One can come to understand the deeper meaning of God's mercy. Actually, what this misericordiae in the Latin translates, what do I mean? Well, there's two words in the Old Testament for mercy, hased and rahamim. Hased is that blood bond of love. Huh? The blood bond of love is that love that is a dependable love. It is a love that you can count on. It is a love that is going to follow through. A holy and dependable love. A covenant love. I talked just last week about what a covenant is, right? The word covenant coming from the Latin convenire, which literally translates a compact agreement. But what God does is he elevates our understanding of this. So it's just not a matter of exchanging things. This is yours and this is mine. But an actual exchange of persons. I am yours and you are mine. This is what God's covenant love is about. This is what Hasad is about. God is following through on his promise in his son, Jesus Christ. God is following through on a promise he made all the way back to Abraham. When he said there in Genesis 22, I will provide the lamb for the slaughter. And so he did. And remember, Abraham took his son Isaac up a mountain where Isaac, after carrying wood on his back, was to be the slaughter for the sacrifice. And we know the story. God intervened. 2,000 years later, there is Christ on the same mountain, a son who carried up wood to the top of that mountain so as to be a slaughter. He followed through on his promise because his love is steadfast. It's dependable. It's a love you can count on. It's a said, a said. And then there's Rahamim. It's God's gentleness, God's tenderness. The Rahamim, the Hebrew literally translates abdominal region or womb. The idea there is that God's mercy comes from uh, the innermost core of his being. Okay. And it gives life, right? Womb, it gives life. But it is gentle and it is tender always and all the time. So Misericordia translates beautifully this Old Testament vision of mercy, this holy, dependable, committed love, and a love that is gentle, tender, a love that moves us deeply out from the innermost core of our being. Christ has pity on them. That word for pity literally translates as, you know, he was, he was moved to his guts, literally translated. What is the idea there? He was moved in the innermost part of his being. He saw man's earthly plight and he ran to him. This is mercy. And he has already borne our misery. All human misery. From the beginning to the end of human history, including, my dear friends, mine and yours, in his passion and death. And he rose again, 
to show us what? That we too can live a new life. A life in which suffering has real value and redemptive meaning. What does that mean? There's such a thing called redemptive suffering. Christ did not suffer to remove suffering altogether. He showed how suffering has redemptive power. In this vein, we must always remember that most salient truth that comes to us from the cross, literally from the cross. What do I mean? Joe, I'm going through something right now that is excruciating. Did you hear what you just said? You said, Joe, I am going through something right now that is excruciates from the cross. I am going through something that is excruciating, and if it is excruciating, then it is from the cross. When we contemplate the pierced side of Christ, my dear friends, what we quickly discover if we are going through something that is excruciating, we can always say, Lord, I know you understand. And you are giving this to me as an opportunity, I dare say, (laughs) to offer up to you so as to release more power on the world. This is what Paul means in Colossians 1.24 when he says, we are to make up what is lacking in the sufferings of the body of Christ, his church. We share in the redemptive mission of the church. Christ calls us to participate in this redemptive mission. Colossians 1.24 is a profound verse when it comes to redemptive suffering. When it comes to this need that we have to take what is excruciating and conform it to the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the more we contemplate the pure side of Christ, the more we, incur- we are encouraged to do this. It's interesting, just yesterday we celebrated the feast day of St. John Paul the Great, the first time we had the opportunity to call him saint on his feast day. In his final work, Memory and Identity, published just before his death, he had this to say about Christ's sacrifice and the importance of suffering. In sacrificing himself for us all, Christ gave a new meaning to suffering, opening up a new dimension, a new order, the order of love. It is true that suffering entered human history with original sin. Sin is that sting, as 1 Corinthians 15.55 reminds us, that wishes to inflict pain, wounding man mortally. Yet, the passion of Christ on the cross gave a radically new meaning to suffering, transforming it from within. It introduced into human history, which is the history of sin, a blameless suffering accepted purely for love. This suffering opens the door to the hope of a liberation, hope for the definitive elimination of that sting which is tearing humanity apart. It is this suffering which burns and consumes evil with a flame of love and draws forth, even from sin, a great flowering of good. Wow. And can we ever imagine a blameless suffering accepted purely for love? Christ was not murdered. He was the all-powerful Son of the Most High God. He could have come down from the cross at any moment. He could have prevented his tortures from ever touching him. But he chose to suffer. 
And so are we called to choose to suffer with him, to conform our anguish, our excruciation, our suffering with him, that in him and in his power, it might now be something life-giving. Wow. He chose to stay on the cross. He chose to die. What does the evangelist tell us there in John 10, 18? No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This is a blameless suffering accepted purely for love. Oh, the unfathomable depths of this love. Who can take it in? And we can say that only from within, that this blameless suffering of the God-man, from within the flow of blood and water gushing from the heart of Christ, can we look at all the suffering in our hearts and in the world and still conclude that God is love? John Paul II also once said, and I love this, in an interview that was published, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, he says, if the agony on the cross had not happened, the truth that God is love would have been unfounded. And so it is. In this last paragraph that Christopher West reflects upon, that is paragraph 39 from Benedict's work, God is Love, he says this, to experience love and in this way to cause the light of God to enter into the world, this is the invitation I would like to extend with this present encyclical. Okay, so what's going on here? Again, love is not merely an idea, but an experience. It is the experience for which we are created and for which we long and search. This is why John Paul II, in his first encyclical, said this, Man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. You know, we noted six, seven weeks ago, if fish are truly free when they are swimming and birds truly free when they are flying, then man is truly free to be himself when he is loving and being loved. Mm. So Benedict invites us to discover the meaning of our lives by discovering and experiencing authentic love, not the counterfeit, the love that comes from Christ. Huh? Certainly, we can say we experience God's love and the love of others in the beauty of creation in the very fact of our existence. But we are invited to experience so much more. We are invited to, here we go again, encounter the very mystery behind the universe. We are invited to live in an intimate relationship with this God who has created us, with this God who is love, with this God who is Father. Huh? How is this possible? I mean, we are hopelessly earthbound. True enough. You know, we cannot reach up to the heavens to encounter God. If God is all-powerful, though, he could hypothetically humble himself and come down to our level. And is this not what he does? 
in the incarnation. John 1.14 reminds us that God, the Logos, the logic and wisdom at the core of the universe became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the Christian claim. And I love uh, this line from, from Christopher West. You know, we do not need to shed our skin, as some world religions believe, to reach for the transcendent God. God took on our skin. He became flesh to meet us where we are. And as John Paul II said elsewhere, God comes to us in the things we know best and can verify most easily the things of our everyday life, apart from which we cannot understand ourselves. The church takes these things, my friends, these things we know best, the things we can verify most easily, things such as human conversation, human touch, the love of man and woman, things such as water, bread, wine, oil. And by the power of God, they become sacraments, visible, tangible, continuations of and doorways into the mystery and miracle of God's incarnation, of God's meeting us in the flesh. This word made flesh, we can say, as John 1, 4, 5 says, is the light of men, that this light would shine in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So what are we called to do? We are called to pray for the eyes to recognize the invisible, hidden treasures of the sacraments so that the light of God might enter our hearts and our world. How desperately our darkened world needs men and women ablaze with this divine light and love. I hear so often those words, but Joe, it's getting so dark. Yes, yes, it is getting dark. So what are we going to do about it? Well, it's just, you know, it's getting me down and so on and so forth. But what is the message of Jesus Christ? What did we just say? Let the light of Christ shine within you. And what will you discover? The truth of light and darkness. That darkness has not overcome it. And the darker it gets, the brighter your light shines. We must contemplate the pierced side of Christ. The wounds of Christ from which gush forth life-giving power, from which gush forth the sacramental life of the church, from which gush forth the encounter. And so it is. In the sacramental life, we encounter the God who is love. Let us close with a word of prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, 
The website is joeholcraft.org.